Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. If you're visiting with us, we preach through books of the Bible. And right now I'm preaching through the gospel according to John. We're midway through the chapter, so we're going to cover verses 9 through 19 this morning. And let's just begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. So if you would, join me as we read. John chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and, he had done, and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Many people who profess faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed King and Savior, are actually confused about what that means. Some think that Jesus is a king who has primarily come to save them from political enemies that they consider evil, whether in their own country, like a rival political party or outside it like a foreign power. Others think of Jesus as a king who has primarily come to save them from hard physical circumstances in life. Maybe it's poverty or disease or warfare or an oppressive government. Still others think of Jesus as a king who has primarily come to save them from their own personal Troubles that they're experiencing in life, such as depression or social anxiety or addiction and the negative effects of things like that. Such people might rejoice to hear about Jesus, profess their faith in him, sing his praises and even tell others about him when in reality they don't understand what kind of king and savior he really is. Now the problem with that is that over time, people in this state are in grave danger of becoming disillusioned with Jesus, no longer believing in him when he doesn't do what they thought he would. Of course, none of us will fully understand what it means that Jesus is God's king and savior when we first believe in him especially, but it's important that we at least grasp certain basic things about him and become more and more clear about his person and his work 
if we are going to maintain our trust in and our obedience to him over the long term in life. Our text this morning is designed to address this very issue. It is, it describes the so-called triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem one final time on Sunday of the last week of his earthly life. His entrance is described by John in such a way as to reveal his true identity as the messianic king and savior promised in the Old Testament. But it also reveals the fact that many who professed to believe in him did not understand what kind of king and savior he really was. John's clear intention is that we who read this account of this event might understand what so many who were there did not. Now with that in mind, let's take a closer look now at this story in John 12, 9 through 19. Remember that John chapter 12 is a turning point in the gospel of John. The first 11 chapters of the book focus on seven miracles that Jesus performed, which were signs which signified various things about his identity and his mission. These chapters together are sometimes called, for that reason, the book of signs. Chapters 13 through 21 focus in upon the very last days of Jesus' life, which culminated in his death and resurrection. Since John describes uh, these last days, and particularly his death, as being the hour of his glory, the events through which he was most glorified, these last nine chapters of the book have often been called the book of glory. Now, in between these two main sections is John chapter 12. Uh, It brings the book of signs to a close and leads us into the book of glory. And this chapter focuses upon, first of all, how people responded to the miraculous signs of Jesus that were recorded in the first 11 chapters. And then, at the same time, It describes the events that led up to these very last days of his life, the hour of his ultimate glory. Now, one of these events that these chapters describe is in our text. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the first day of the last week of his life. We call it his triumphal entry for reasons that we will see in our text. Now remember, the book opened in verses 1 through 8, the chapter opened in verses 1 through 8, with Jesus coming out of the wilderness and returning to that little village outside of Jerusalem called Bethany, where he had recently raised his friend Lazarus Lazarus from the dead. At a dinner held for he and his disciples in the house of Simon the leper when he did return to Bethany. You remember that in this last section, verses 1 through 8, Lazarus' sister, Mary, had expressed her deep devotion to Jesus. 
by anointing him with extremely costly perfume. Now we pick up the story this morning with these words in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now recall that these events took place in the days leading up to the Passover feast. And back in chapter 11, verse 55, John told us that Jerusalem, the place where the feast would be celebrated, was already filling up with pilgrims who were coming to celebrate the feast. And at the height of the feast, the city would be absolutely bursting at the seams. It would swell to three or four times its normal population. There's reason to believe from certain historical documents that the numbers of people in the city could reach into the millions. So even though this was the Saturday before the feast, there would already have been very large crowds of Jews in the city. And apparently, word about Jesus' most recent miracle, the astonishing resurrection of a well-known Jewish man in, Lazarus, in, in Bethany after he'd been in the tomb for four days, word of this miracle had spread like wildfire even among the pilgrims who were filling up the city for the feast. Because John tells us that when they heard that Jesus had arrived back in Bethany, large crowds of them made the short one-and-a-half-mile trek to the little village to see him there. And it wasn't just Jesus they were going to see, but also Lazarus. They wanted to observe with their own eyes this man whom Jesus had so recently raised from the dead in front of many Jews from the region. Now, of course, all of this was a great source of consternation to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. This most recent miracle which Jesus had performed was so spectacular. So many people had seen it happen with their own eyes that an increasing number of Jews were becoming convinced that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And this was perilous for the nation in the minds of the chief priests and the Pharisees because, quite simply, it could spark a revolution. If enough people believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, they might try to install him as their king and support him in an attempt to overthrow their Roman oppressors. And then, of course, the chief priests, the Pharisees believed the emperor would send his legions to crush the rebellion and the nation would be destroyed in the process. So we read the words of the Jewish leaders back in chapter 11, verse 48, where they said, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So this is why you remember the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, had formally decided to put Jesus to death. As the high priest Caiaphas had put it, you remember, they had concluded that it was better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. But now we see that Lazarus was a problem for them too. His presence in Bethany was serving as an ongoing testimony to 
what Jesus had done. And now large crowds of Jewish pilgrims were going there to see and perhaps talk to Lazarus about it all. And as it says in verse 11 of our text, on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we read in verse 10, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to to death as well. As D.A. Carson explained, Lazarus' very life provided a ground for faith in Jesus, so he too had to be destroyed. You know, we have to just pause here and reflect on the actions of this Jewish leaders for a moment. Uh, One scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, made an interesting comment on this that I think is pertinent for us. He said, when the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, it betrayed an astounding refusal to allow their beliefs to be changed by undeniable facts. They would rather destroy the evidence than change their minds. This is not rational behavior, but sin produces irrational action, end quote. I think that's correct. The response of the Jewish leaders to the resurrection of Lazarus is a sober reminder to us of the way sin leads to irrational action. Think about how this works in other cases. For instance, sin leads addicts to think that they're in control. They can quit at any time. Sin leads adulterers to blame their betrayal on the failings of their spouse. Sin leads, as we have seen, scientists and philosophers to adopt any naturalistic explanation for the origin of the universe, of life, of the human species, no matter how preposterous that explanation might be, in order to keep from accepting the fact that it was all designed by an intelligent God. As the Lord put it through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why, as the Apostle Paul explained in Romans 1, fallen man in his natural state, remember he says, suppresses the truth. And as he says at the end of chapter 1, instead approves unrighteousness. Claiming to be wise, we in our natural condition are actually very foolish. And for this reason, fallen humanity stands condemned before God under his righteous judgment. And in this wretched condition, you see, we can see all need to be forgiven and saved. In verse 12 of our text, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So Jesus spent Saturday with his friends in Bethany, but the next day, Sunday, he made the short trip up and over the Mount of Olives and down to the capital city of Jerusalem. And just as many pilgrims from Jerusalem had traveled to Bethany to see Jesus on Saturday, so now large crowds of Jews from the city, probably including both pilgrims and other residents, went out to meet him 
on the road when they heard that he was coming. And we're told in verse 13 that, quote, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, every morning during the annual feasts in Jerusalem, the temple choir would sing the words of Psalms 113 through 118. And the dominant theme of this package of psalms is praise to God. And so it was called the Hallel, which is the Hebrew word for praise. Now, because of this, most Jews would have been very familiar with the words of these psalms. The last psalm in the Hallel is Psalm 118. It seems to describe a joyful processional into the city of Jerusalem after an occasion of wonderful deliverance by God. And when the nation has been called to praise the Lord for his goodness and for his steadfast love, then in the psalm, a single individual begins to speak. Some think it's the Davidic king, but we can't be sure. And he begins to exalt the Lord for delivering him from his enemies with a mighty hand. And he calls the nation to trust in God rather than in man. And he rejoices over the incredible reversal of fortunes which God had brought about in it all. And he says these famous words, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Then in verse 25, He gives voice to Israel's need for God to deliver them in the future, going forward. And it says, save us, we pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Now the Hebrew word that's translated there, save us, Hoshiana in Hebrew, I probably didn't pronounce that right. That's where we get the word Hosanna just a transliteration of that Hebrew word. And we see it there in verse 13 of our text. It was a joy-filled expression of Israel's hope and anticipation that God would save them, would deliver them from their enemies in the future as he had done in the past. Then, as if in response to that cry, the psalmist mysteriously almost went on to proclaim with prophetic anticipation A future time when the Lord would send a deliverer to Israel. And he says these words in verses 26 and 27 of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So, the arrival of this one who comes in the name of the Lord, this future deliverer from Yahweh, who would be like the dawning of the sun upon the nation and whose arrival would be the ultimate occasion for festal worship. It was these words from this climactic ending to the Hallel 
that the jubilant crowds shouted as they met Jesus on the road from Bethany and escorted him into the city of Jerusalem. It was a clear declaration of their belief in their minds that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who came now in the name of the Lord to deliver Israel from her enemies in a definitive way, in fulfillment of the ancient hope expressed in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And if there was any question that that was indeed their understanding, their meaning by their words, John tells us that they added a little phrase at the end of the citation, which actually wasn't in the psalm. They said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. These large crowds of Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and gone out to meet Jesus when he entered the city were shouting the news with glad confidence that everyone would hear the Messiah, the son of David, the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel, whose coming had been foretold by the prophets by Psalm 118, had arrived. And he was about to enter the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, as great as all that sounds to our ears, there is something else about the celebration of these crowds which needs to be noticed here. At the beginning of verse 13, it says, they took branches of palm trees when they went out to meet Jesus. The other Gospels tell us that they took these palm branches and spread them on the road before him, you know, like a a royal carpet. They also put their cloaks down. Interestingly, while the other Gospels mention these branches, they talk about branches or leafy branches, John's Gospel is the only one who tells us that it was palm branches or branches from palm trees. Now, this is, of course, why Christians have come to call the Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, right? But have you ever asked, what was the significance of this act? Well, it turns out that palm branches were often used in celebrating victory over one's enemies. For instance, when Simon the Maccabee returned with his forces after he had driven the Seleucid armies out of Jerusalem in 141 BC, so this is the time between Malachi and Matthew, It was a great event in Israel's history. And it kicked off a period in which Israel experienced a short season of national liberation under Maccabean rule. When he returned to Jerusalem after defeating the Seleucid armies, he was hailed by the crowds with music and with the waving of palm branches. Victory over our enemies. Something similar is going on here in John 12, 13. As Andreas Kostenberger explains, he says, the waving of palm branches, which symbolically conveyed the notion of victory over one's enemies, probably indicates that the people mistakenly thought that Jesus would then and there bring national deliverance from Israel's political enemies, the Romans. In other words, While these crowds of Jews had correctly concluded that Jesus' miracles indicated that he was the promised Messiah, the long-awaited king whom the Lord had sent to deliver Israel, they had misunderstood 
what kind of king he was and what kind of deliverance he had come to bring. Jesus had not come to lead a military revolution against the Roman oppressors and to establish himself as king over the nation of Israel as the crowds were hoping when they laid palm branches at his feet and hailed him as the king. Indeed, what we see next in the passage is that, no doubt, knowing that the crowds were both right and wrong about his identity and his mission, Jesus did something which was intended to clarify what kind of king he was. We read about it there in verses 14 and 15. There it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Notice how John tells us that Jesus initiated this act. He found a donkey and sat on it so that he might ride it into the city. The fascinating details about how he found that donkey, you remember them probably from the other three Gospels. John doesn't tell us about that here, and so we'll skip over that. But what John does include, just like the other Gospels do, is why Jesus chose to ride a donkey, indeed a donkey's colt, into Jerusalem on this last occasion of his earthly life. John tells us he was intentionally fulfilling a prophecy about the Messiah, a prophecy which is found in the oracles of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, which John cites for us in verse 15. Now, John's citation, if you compare it to the original text of Zechariah 9, 9, you can see it's sort of a combination of a summary and paraphrase, not an exact quote of the original prophecy. But let me read for you the original text of Zechariah 9, 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then the oracle goes on to say this in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from the frame and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So John tells us that Jesus chose to ride into Jerusalem on a young donkey in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 about the Messiah. And in essence, It was a way of Jesus confirming that, yes, he is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king, who had come to save the people of God, righteous and having salvation is he. But notice how the actual text of the prophecy explains the significance of the donkey. It says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, it wasn't even a full-grown donkey. It was a young donkey, a baby, essentially. 
So the choice of a young donkey as a mount for the Messiah, as he entered Jerusalem, it signified that unlike the kings of this world who would ride on war horses, the Messiah would be a humble king whose reign would not be characterized by the same type of earthly pomp and power that other kings displayed. And yet, as the oracle of Zechariah went on to say, he would still somehow come with salvation. And his reign would extend to the ends of the earth and bring peace to the nations. How this paradoxical description would come to pass is left unexplained in this passage. But it is, of course, explained elsewhere in the book of John as well as in the rest of the New Testament. Indeed, we could say that this paradox of a king who brings salvation coming in a humble way gets right to the wisdom of God that is at the heart of the Christian gospel. Jesus is the eternal divine son of God through whom the world was made, John chapter 1, 1 through 3. Yet, when he entered into the world as a man, mankind whom he created didn't even recognize him. John chapter 1, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord's ultimate anointed one, who would rule over the nations forever. And yet he was born in poverty and in obscurity without earthly fanfare. You remember the description in Luke 2, 7? And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness as a man. As Peter said of him in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and yet he was reviled by men as a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer, as one who deserved to die. He was the son of the Most High God, as the angel Gabriel had told his mother, whose Word we see in the Gospels, both a legion of demons and the waves of the sea obeyed. Yet he was gentle and lowly in heart, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Though crowds of people here hailed him as the king of Israel, he entered Jerusalem on this last Sunday of his earthly life, mounted on a donkey, And by Friday, he would be betrayed by one of his disciples and abandoned by the rest. But this he willingly endured to save those very disciples, not from the Romans, but from the true enemy of their soul, sin and death and the devil. And the way he would conquer these enemies and liberate his followers from their grasp was not through the power of horse and steel, but it would be through dying the death they deserved to die, the death of a condemned criminal 
but he would do it as their substitute in their place. The Christ would be crucified. The king of glory would be crowned with thorns and mocked. The lion of the tribe of Judah would be slain like a sacrificial lamb for the sins of his people. He who was their Lord and master would serve his people by giving his life as a ransom to set them free from sin and death. And in this paradoxical way, like the paradox of the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, though Israel would remain under the boot of Rome, in this paradoxical way, this humble king who rode into Jerusalem in this humble way, that first Palm Sunday, would indeed bring salvation to his people. Because all who would believe in him, who would simply trust in him, repenting of their sins, would be forgiven and reconciled to God. They would have true peace through his sacrificial death on a Roman cross that Good Friday. And when he rose from the dead, three days after his death, and ascended to the right hand of God in heaven, do you see, then he would begin his almighty rule, which will one day extend to the ends of the earth. And even now, he is speaking peace to the nations, as the prophet Zechariah foretold, because his servants are being sent out to the ends of the earth with the good news of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God through his death. You know, John's account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem ends in verses 16 through 19 by telling us about different ways that people responded to it. So on the one hand, he says in verse 16 that his disciples, while they rightly believed that he was the Messiah, and many of them had true faith, Yet even now, they didn't understand the significance of Jesus' act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey at the time. It wasn't, John says, until after he was risen from the dead, after he was glorified, that they finally put it together that he was fulfilling that prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and understood what it meant. On the other hand, we see in verses 17 through 19 that as the crowds continued to hail Jesus as the Messianic king while he rode into Jerusalem, the Pharisees thought their worst fears were all coming true. Like the crowds, they missed the significance of Jesus' humble mount. Like the crowds, they thought Jesus was trying to be an earthly king who would overthrow the Romans. But unlike the crowds, they didn't think he was the Messiah despite the signs he had done, and so they were appalled at what the crowds were saying about him. Despite all their efforts, it seemed that the people would still try to make Jesus king, and it would result in the downfall of the nation. So you read the last verse in our text, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That little phrase will be significant, but we're going to pick it up in the next section because it leads us into that section. So let's just close by reflecting for a moment on what we're to take away from this account 
of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey's colt. There are two main things I think this passage teaches us. First, it teaches us what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. It teaches us what kind of king he is and what kind of salvation he brought. It points us to the fact that he is a humble king, one who would rule not by earthly power or pomp, Rather, he is the king whom the prophet Zechariah describes, saying, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? And in saying that, it points us to a gospel truth that would be unpacked in the rest of this book and throughout the New Testament that Jesus did not come primarily to save us from the problems we face in this life, but from our captivity to the oppressive power of sin and death and the devil. And finally, it points us to the way, consistent with his identity as the humble king, that Jesus would conquer these enemies and liberate us in truth. He would conquer sin by bearing it in our place. He would triumph over death by dying for us. He would defeat the devil by giving himself into the power of his agents. This is the mystery of the gospel. Christians believe in and they proclaim a crucified king, one who saved us through suffering and was glorified through humiliation. But the second thing this passage teaches us is that many people are not going to understand this about Jesus. And it begins with people who might even claim to be his disciples, as we see, like these crowds in our text. There are many who will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, sent to be our King and Savior. But like these crowds, they won't really understand what kind of king he is, nor the nature of his salvation. Like these crowds, they may think of both his kingship and his salvation in worldly terms. Some think of Jesus even today as a political liberator, as a social transformer, as a therapeutic guru, or worst of all, a glorified cosmic genie. His reign in their eyes is about this world. His salvation is about rescuing us from right now, from the various kinds of earthly troubles which we're experiencing in life. And as a result of this confusion, like the crowds in our passage, they may hail Jesus as King and Savior, but they don't really have an interest in the humble king that we see in this passage. The king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that Sunday and would be hanging dead on a cross by Friday. Since the problems that many are worried about aren't necessarily the punishment they deserve from God for their sin, they don't really have much use for a king who offered himself up to death as a sin-bearing sacrifice. Since the victories that many people are looking for are defined primarily in terms of earthly things, they're not looking for a king who would liberate his people from the power of Satan by laying down his own life to pay their ransom. You know, there are many churches who go Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, month after month, year after year, without really proclaiming these basic truths of the gospel. They, they don't talk about human sin. 
They don't talk about divine judgment. They don't talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ upon the cross and the need to repent and believe in him for salvation. They talk about Jesus, but present him quite differently than the New Testament does. They want a gospel that offers glory without suffering, salvation without sacrifice, life without death, a crown without a cross. And you see, such churches might be full of many people, but you wonder whether they, like these crowds of Jews who hailed Jesus as the Messiah in our text, have really understood what kind of king and savior he is. Now, of course, I say all that. But what we need to realize is that the danger is not just out there in other churches. It's in here as well. In each one of our hearts as disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, John Calvin famously said of the natural man that his heart is an idle factory, right? And he's right because because of our remaining corruption, even as Christians, because we still have a sinful nature, we too are prone to refashion Jesus in our minds, to suit our own ideas, to give us what we want. We too can downplay or ignore the things about his identity and mission which we really aren't interested in or which make us uncomfortable. And we can begin imagining him to be a king who shares our personal ideas and our passions and promotes our pet interests and causes. And so we have to constantly fight to say, no, I have to let the scriptures shape my understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, rather than simply lean on my own understanding. But perhaps some of you here aren't not disciples of Jesus at all. Maybe you're more like the chief priests and the the Pharisees. You just don't believe in him. It's interesting to note that they shared the same misconception about Jesus, about the Messiah, as the crowds did. They too thought that the Messiah would be an earthly king of an earthly kingdom. And that's why they thought it was so dangerous that the crowds were thinking that Jesus was the Messiah. I wonder, perhaps you too don't believe in Jesus because you too have the wrong idea about who he is. Perhaps you associate Jesus with a political party or with certain cultural movements that you find distasteful. Perhaps your understanding of Jesus has come from the misguided views of certain Christians that you know. And you've thought to yourself in looking at them, look, if Jesus is like what they're saying. He's not for me. Let me just suggest that before you assume that you know who Jesus is, before you make any more judgments about him, that you sit down and you pick up a New Testament or you download it on your phone and you read the firsthand accounts of Jesus' life and ministry written by those who knew him personally, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It won't take you very long. You could even do it in an afternoon, today. And you may find that many of the things that you thought about him just weren't true. And while you also may find that he still may make you uncomfortable, say and do things that you think, well, 
That's not really the kind of Savior I makes, that makes me comfortable. Yet, you'll also find that he is claiming to be your only hope. Because though he is a righteous king and worthy of the obedience and praise of all, he is a humble king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life to liberate sinners like you and me from the power and penalty of his sin, your sins. And so I would pray that as you read of Jesus and you come to know who he truly is, that you will actually come to him in faith, asking him to save you from your sins by his grace, even this morning. You know, many people who profess faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as God's anointed King and Savior, are confused about what that means. This passage is designed to begin to correct these misconceptions with the truth. It reveals something of what kind of king he is and what kind of salvation he brings so that we too might be able to say with full understanding, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have ordained that these first-hand accounts of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, have been written down and preserved and passed down to us that we might know him through the scriptures. And we thank you that by the power of your Spirit working in our hearts, you have, as you did with Lydia in Acts 16, opened our hearts to understand the things that we hear of Jesus from the Scripture. We thank you that you have softened our hearts and taken out our hearts of stone for our hearts were like those of the chief priests and Pharisees until you came and removed the scales from our eyes and gave us true faith in Christ, true repentance from our sin. We thank you for the salvation that you have provided for us through our humble king, through his sacrificial death for our sins and his resurrection for our vindication and eternal life. We thank you that you have united us to him, made us his disciples, made us his people, and that we have received the benefits of his victory over sin and death and the devil. Oh Lord, we know that when he entered into Jerusalem and the crowds hailed him as king, they were right even though they were wrong. He is the king that he is seated right now at your right hand, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that he is ordering all things after the counsel of your will and bringing them to that place when one day he will return in glory to take us to himself, to raise us from the dead and save us finally from sin and all of its effects to make all things new and bring us into our eternal home. We long for that day and we thank you that even now he carries us that nothing shall separate us from his love. Strengthen our faith this morning in our great King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.